From Eric Public Media and the Alaska Ice Corporation, this is the podcast Wikiradia, wherein we read from start to finish without comment or commentary the Wikipedia entries that we find most interesting. Today's topic is George Orwell's novel 1984. The original Wikipedia page lives at www.wikipedia.org slash wiki slash 19 underscore 80 4. Before we start, we want to know what your favorite Wikipedia pages are. Please send suggestions for future episodes to wikiredia at pm.me. This is 1984, Wikiredia episode number 210, date of production August 2nd, 2021. And I'm your host, Eric Gorris. Let's get started. A novel, often referred to as 1984, is a dystopian social science fiction novel by the English novelist George Orwell, the pen name of Eric Arthur Blair. It was published on June 8, 1949, by Secker and Warburg as Orwell's ninth and final book completed in his lifetime. Thematically, 1984 centers on the consequences of totalitarianism, mass surveillance, and repressive regimentation of persons and behaviors within society. Orwell, himself a democratic socialist, modeled the totalitarian government in the novel after Stalinist Russia and Nazi Germany. More broadly, the novel examines the role of truth and facts within politics and the ways in which they are manipulated. The story takes place in an imagined future, the year 1984, when much of the world has fallen victim to perpetual war, omnipresent government surveillance, historical negationism, and propaganda. Great Britain, known as Airstrip One, has become a province of a totalitarian superstate named Oceania that is ruled by the party who employ the thought police to persecute individuality and independent thinking. Big Brother, the leader of the party, enjoys an intense cult of personality, despite the fact that he may not even exist. Their protagonist, Winston Smith, is a diligent and skillful rank-and-file worker and outer party member who secretly hates the party and dreams of a rebellion. He enters into a forbidden relationship with a colleague, Julia, and starts to remember what life was like before the party came to power. 1984 has become a classic literary example of political and dystopian fiction. It popularized the term Orwellian as an adjective, with many terms used in the novel entering common usage, including Big Brother, Doublethink, Thought Police, Thought Crime, Newspeak, Memory Hole, 2 plus 2 equals 5, and Proles. Time included it on its 100 best English language novels from 1923 to 2005. It was placed on the Modern Library's 100 best novels, reaching number 13 on the editor's list and number six on the reader's list. In 2003, the novel was listed as number eight on the Big Read survey by the BBC. Parallels have been drawn between the novel's subject matter and real-life instances of totalitarianism, mass surveillance, and violations of freedom of expression, among other themes. Orwell began work which encapsulated the thesis at the heart of his novel, which explored the consequences of dividing the world up into zones of influence, as conjured by the recent Tehran conference. Three years later, he wrote most of the actual book on the Scottish island of Jura from 1947 to 1948, despite being seriously ill with tuberculosis. On December 4, 1948, he sent the final manuscript to the publisher Secker and Warburg, and 1984 was published on June 8, 1949. The Last Man in Europe was an early title for the novel, but in a letter dated October 22, 1948, to his publisher, Frederick Warburg, eight months before publication, Orwell wrote about hesitating between that title and 1984. Warburg suggested choosing the latter, which he took to be a more commercially viable choice for the main title. The introduction to the Houghton Mifflin Harcourt edition of Animal Farm and 1984 
2003, claims that the title 1984 was chosen simply as an inversion of the year 1948, the year in which it was being completed, and that the date was meant to give an immediacy and urgency to the menace of totalitarian rule. This is disputed. There's a very popular theory, so popular that many people don't realize it is just a theory, that Orwell's title was simply a satirical inversion of 1948, but there is no evidence for this whatsoever. This idea, first suggested by Orwell's U.S. publisher, seems far too cute for such a serious book. Scholars have raised other possibilities. His wife Eileen wrote a poem for her old school's centenary called End of the Century 1984. G.K. Chesterton's 1904 political satire, The Napoleon of Notting Hill, which mocks the art of prophecy, opens in 1984. The year is also a significant date in The Iron Heel, but all of these connections are exposed as no more than coincidences by the early drafts of the novel Orwell was still calling The Last Man in Europe. First he wrote 1980, then 1982, and only later 1984. The most fateful date in literature was a late amendment. That from Dorian Linsky, The Ministry of Truth, the biography of George Orwell's 1984. Throughout its publication history, 1984 has either been banned or legally challenged as subversive or ideologically corrupting, like the dystopian novels We, Brave New World, Darkness at Noon, and Fahrenheit 451. Some writers consider We to have influenced 1984. The novel also bears significant similarities in plot and characters to Darkness at Noon, which Orwell had reviewed and highly praised. The original manuscript for 1984 is Orwell's only surviving literary manuscript. It is presently held at the John Hay Library at Brown University. In the year 1984, civilization has been damaged by world war, civil conflict, and revolution. Airstrip 1, formerly known as Great Britain, is a province of Oceania, one of the three totalitarian superstates that rule the world. It is ruled by the party under the ideology of Ingsoch, a new speak shortening of English socialism, and the mysterious leader, Big Brother, who has an intense cult of personality. The party brutally purges out anyone who does not fully conform to their regime using the thought police and constant surveillance through telescreens, two-way televisions, cameras, and hidden microphones. Those who fall out of favor with the party become unpersons, disappearing with all evidence of their existence destroyed. In London, Winston Smith is a member of the Outer Party, working at the Ministry of Truth where he rewrites historical records to conform to the state's ever-changing version of history. Winston revises past editions of The Times, while the original documents are destroyed after being dropped into ducts leading to the memory hole. He secretly opposes the party's rule and dreams of a rebellion, despite knowing that he is already a thought criminal and likely to be caught one day. While in a prole, that is, proletariat, neighborhood, he meets Mr. Charrington, the owner of an antique shop, and buys a diary where he writes thoughts criticizing the party and Big Brother, and also writes that, quote, if there is hope, it lies in the proles. To his dismay, when he visits a prole quarter, he discovers they have no political consciousness. An old man he talks to there has no significant memory of life before the revolution. As Winston works in the Ministry of Truth, he observes Julia, a young woman maintaining the novel writing machines at the Ministry, whom Winston suspects of being a spy against him, and he develops an intense hatred of her. He vaguely suspects that his superior, an inner party official named O'Brien, is part of an enigmatic underground resistance movement known as the Brotherhood, formed by Big Brother's reviled political rival, Emmanuel Goldstein. In a lunch conversation with his co-worker Syme, who is assisting in developing a revised version of Newspeak, the controlled language of limited vocabulary, Syme bluntly reveals the true purpose of Newspeak, to reduce the capacity of human thought. Winston reflects that Syme will disappear as he is too intelligent and therefore dangerous to the party. 
Winston also discover, discusses preparations for hate week with his neighbor and colleague Parsons. One day, Julia secretly hands Winston a love note, and the two begin an affair, an act of rebellion as the party insists that sex is only for reproduction. Julia also loathes the party, but is politically apathetic and uninterested in overthrowing the regime, thinking it impossible. Initially meeting in the country, they later meet in a rented room above Mr. Charrington's shop. During the affair, Winston remembers the disappearance of his family during the Civil War of the 1950s and the tense relationship with his wife, Catherine, from whom he is separated, as divorce is not permitted by the party. He also notices the disappearance of Syme. Weeks later, O'Brien invites Winston to his flat, which is of far higher quality than Winston's. O'Brien introduces himself as a member of the Brotherhood and sends Winston a copy of The Theory and Practice of Oligarchical Collectivism by Goldstein. Meanwhile, during the nation's hate week, Oceania's enemy suddenly changes from Eurasia to East Asia, which goes mostly unnoticed. Winston is recalled to the ministry to help make the major necessary revisions to the records. Winston and Julia read parts of the book, which explains how the party maintains power, the true meaning of its slogans, and the concept of perpetual war. It argues that the party can be overthrown if proles rise up against it. However, to Winston, it does not answer why the party is motivated to maintain power. Winston and Julia are captured and imprisoned when Mr. Charrington is revealed to be a thought police agent. At the Ministry of Love, Winston briefly interacts with colleagues who have been arrested for other offenses. O'Brien arrives, revealing himself as the thought police agent who tells Winston that he will never know whether the Brotherhood actually exists and that Emmanuel Goldstein's book was written collaboratively by O'Brien and presumably other party members. Over several months, Winston is starved and tortured to cure himself of his insanity by changing his own perception to fit in line with the party. O'Brien reveals that the party, quote, seeks power for its own sake. When he taunt, taunts Winston by asking if there is any humiliation he has not been made to suffer, Winston points out that the party has not managed to make him betray Julia even after he accepted the party's invincibility and its principles. Winston accepts internally that he really means he has not rescinded his feelings towards Julia. He betrays her by revealing her crimes many times. He fantasizes that moments before his execution, his heretic side will emerge, which, as long as he is killed while unrepentant, will be his great victory over the party. O'Brien takes Winston to room 101, for the final stage of re-education, which contains each prisoner's worst fear, indicating that the level of surveillance on the public is far more thorough than initially believed by Winston. Confronted with a wire cage holding frenzied rats, his biggest fear, Winston willingly betrays Julia by wishing the suffering upon her instead. Winston is released back into public life and continues to frequent the Chestnut Tree Cafe. One day, Winston encounters Julia, who was also tortured. Both reveal that they have betrayed the other and no longer have feelings for each other. Back in the cafe, a news alert sounds and celebrates Oshania's supposed massive victory over Eurasian enemies in Africa. Winston finally accepts that he loves Big Brother. Characters. Main characters. Winston Smith, the protagonist who is a phlegmatic everyman and is curious about the past before the revolution. Julia, Winston's lover, who is a covert, quote, rebel from the waist downwards, who publicly espouses party doctrine as a member of the fanatical Junior Anti-Sex League. O'Brien, a member of the Inner Party, who poses as a member of the Brotherhood, the counter-revolutionary resistance, to deceive, trap, and capture Winston and Julia. O'Brien has a servant named Martin. Secondary characters. Aronson Jones and Rutherford, 
former members of the Inner Party whom Winston vaguely remembers as among the original leaders of the revolution, long before he had heard of Big Brother. They confessed to treasonable conspiracies with foreign powers and were then executed in the political purges of the 1960s. In between their confessions and executions, Winston saw them drinking in the Chestnut Tree Cafe with broken noses, suggesting that their confessions had been obtained by torture. Later, in the course of his editorial work, Winston sees newspaper evidence contradicting their confessions, but drops it into a memory hole. Eleven years later, he is confronted with the same photograph during his interrogation. Ampleforth, Winston's one-time records department colleague who was imprisoned for leaving the word God in a Kipling poem as he could not find another rhyme for Rod. Winston encounters him at the mini-love. Ampleforth is a dreamer and intellectual who takes pleasure in his work and respects poetry and language, traits which cause him disfavor with the party. Charrington, an officer of the Thought Police, posing as a sympathetic antiques dealer against the proles. Catherine Smith, the emotionally indifferent wife of whom Winston, quote, can't get rid of. Despite disliking sexual intercourse, Catherine married Winston because it was their, quote, duty to the party. Although she was a good thinkful ideologue, they separated because the couple could not conceive children. Divorce is not permitted but couples who cannot have children may live separately. For much of the story, Winston lives in vague hope that Catherine may die or could be, quote, got rid of so that he may marry Julia. He regrets not having killed her by pushing her over the edge of a quarry when he had the chance many years previously. Tom Parsons, Winston's naive neighbor and an ideal member of the outer party, an uneducated, suggestible man who is utterly loyal to the party and fully believes in its perfect image. He is socially active and participates in the party activities for his social class. He is friendly towards Smith and despite his political conformity, punishes his bullying son for firing a catapult at Winston. Later, as a prisoner, Winston sees Parsons in the Ministry of Love and his daughter had reported him to the Thought Police, saying she heard him speak against Big Brother in his sleep. Even this does not dampen his belief in the party, and he states he could do good work in the hard labor camps. Mrs. Parsons, Parsons' wife, is a wan and a hapless woman who is intimidated by her own children. The Parsons' children, a nine-year-old son and seven-year-old daughter, both are members of The Spies, a youth organization that focuses on indoctrinating children with party ideals and training them to report any suspected incidents of unorthodoxy. They represent the new generation of Oceanian citizens without memory of life before Big Brother and without family ties or emotional sentiment. The model society envisioned by the inner party. Syme, Winston's colleague at the Ministry of Truth, a lexiographer involved in a compiling a new edition of the Newspeak Dictionary. Although he is enthusiastic about his work and support for the party, Winston notes, quote, he is too intelligent. He sees too clearly and speaks too plainly. Winston predicts correctly that Syme will become an unperson. Additionally, the following characters mentioned in the novel play a significant role in the world building of 1984. Whether these characters are real or fabrications of party propaganda is something that neither Winston nor the reader is permitted to know. Big Brother, the leader and figurehead of the party that rules Oshania. Emmanuel Goldstein, ostensibly a former leading figure in the party who became the counter-revolutionary leader of the Brotherhood and author of the book The Theory and Practice of Oligarchical Collectivism. Goldstein is the symbolic enemy of the state, the national nemesis who ideologically unites the people of Oshania within the party, especially during the two minutes of hate and other fear-mongering. Setting. History of the world. The revolution. Many of Orwell's earlier writings clearly indicate that he originally welcomed the prospect of a socialist revolution in Britain and indeed hoped to himself take part in such a revolution. 
The concept of English socialism first appeared in Orwell's 1941 The Lion and the Unicorn, Socialism and the English Genius, where Orwell outlined a relatively humane revolution, establishing a revolutionary regime which will shoot traitors but give them a solemn trial beforehand and occasionally acquit them, and which will crush any open revolt promptly and cruelly, but will interfere very little with the spoken and written word. The English socialism, which Orwell foresaw in 1941, would even abolish the House of Lords, but retain the monarchy. However, at some time between 1941 and 1948, Orwell evidently became disillusioned and came to the conclusion that also his cherished English socialism would be perverted into an oppressive totalitarian dictatorship, as bad as Stalin's Soviet Union. Such is the revolution described in 1984. Winston Smith's memories and his reading of the prescribed book, The Theory and Practice of Oligarchical Collectivism by Emmanuel Goldstein, reveal that after the Second World War, the United Kingdom became involved in a war during the early 1950s in which nuclear weapons destroyed hundreds of cities in Europe, Western Russia, and North America. Colchester was destroyed, and London also suffered widespread aerial raids, leading Winston's family to take refuge in a London underground station. The United States absorbed the British Commonwealth and Latin America, resulting in the superstate of Oceania. The new nation fell into civil war, but who fought whom is left unclear. There is a reference to the child Winston having seen rival militias in the streets, each one having a shirt of a distinct color for its members. It is also unclear what the party's name was, while there were more than one, and whether it was a radical faction of the British Labour Party or a new formation arising during the turbulent 1950s. Eventually, Ingsoc won and gradually formed a totalitarian government across Oceania. Another point left completely unexplained is how Americans came to regard English socialism as their ruling ideology when a socialist revolution in Britain was a concrete possibility taken seriously for much of the 20th century, in the United States, socialism of any kind has always been a marginal phenomenon. Meanwhile, Eurasia was formed when the Soviet Union conquered continental Europe, creating a single state stretching from Portugal to the Bering Strait under a neo-Stalinist regime. In effect, the situation of 1940 to 1944, Britain facing an enemy held Europe across the channel, was recreated and this time permanently. Neither side contemplating an invasion, their wars held in other parts of the world. Eastasia, the last superstate established, emerged only after a decade of confused fighting. It includes the Asian lands conquered by China and Japan. Although Eastasia is prevented from matching Eurasia's size, its larger populace compensates for that handicap. While citizens in each state are trained to despise the ideologies of the other two as uncivilized and barbarous, Goldstein's book explains that in fact the superstate's ideologies are practically identical and that the public's ignorance of this fact is imperative so they might continue believing otherwise. The only references to the exterior world for the Oceanian citizens are propaganda and probably fake maps fabricated by the Ministry of Truth to ensure people's belief in the war. However, due to the fact that Winston only barely remembers these events as well as the party's constant manipulation of historical records, the continuity and accuracy of these events are unknown and exactly how the superstate's ruling parties managed to gain their power is also left unclear. Winston notes that the party has claimed credit for inventing helicopters and airplanes, while Julia theorizes that the perpetual bombing of London is merely a false flag operation designed to convince the population that a war is occurring. If the official account was accurate, Smith's strengthening memories of the story of his family's dissolution suggests that the atomic bombings occurred first, followed by civil war featuring confused street fighting in London itself and the societal post-war reorganization, which the party retrospectively calls the revolution. 
It is very difficult to trace the exact chronology, but most of the global societal reorganization occurred between 1945 and the early 1960s. Winston and Julia meet in the ruins of a church that was destroyed in a nuclear attack 30 years earlier, which suggests 1954 as the year of the atomic war that destabilized society and allowed the party to seize power. It is stated in the novel that the fourth quarter of 1983 was also the sixth quarter of the ninth three-year plan, which implies that the first three-year plan began in 1958. By that same year, the party had apparently gained control of Oceania. Among other things, the revolution completely obliterates all religion. While the underground brotherhood might or might not exist, there is no suggestion of any clergy trying to keep any religion alive underground. It is noted that since the party does not really care what the proles think or do, they might have been permitted to have religious worship had they wanted to, but they show no such inclination. Among the manifestly absurd confessions extracted from thought criminals, they have to admit being religious believers. However, no one takes this seriously. Churches have been demolished or converted to other uses. St. Martin in the fields had become a military museum while St. Clement Danes, destroyed in a World War II bombing, was in this future simply never rebuilt. The idea of a revolutionary regime totally destroying religion, with relative ease, is shared with the otherwise very different future of H.G. Wells' The Shape of Things to Come. The War In 1984, there is a perpetual war between Oceania, Eurasia, and Eastasia the superstates that emerged from the global atomic war. The theory and practice of oligarchical collectivism by Emmanuel Goldstein explains that each state is so strong it cannot be defeated, even with the combined losses of two superstates despised changing alliances. To hide such contradictions, the superstates' governments rewrite history to explain that the new alliance was always so, that populations are already accustomed to doublethink and accept it. The war is not fought in Oceanian, Eurasian, or East Asian territory, but in the Arctic wastelands and a disputed zone comprising the sea and land from Tangiers to Darwin. At the start, Oceania and Eastasia are allies fighting Eurasia in northern Africa and the Malabar coast. That alliance ends, and Oceania, allied with Eurasia, fights Eastasia, a change occurring on Hate Week dedicated to creating patriotic fervor for the party's perpetual war. The public are blind to the change. In mid-sentence, an order changes the name of the enemy from Eurasia to Eastasia without pause. When the public are enraged at noticing that the wrong flags and posters are displayed, they tear them down. The party later claims to have captured the whole of Africa. Goldstein's book explains that the purpose of the unwinnable perpetual war is to consume human labor and commodities so that the economy of a superstate cannot support economic equality with a high standard of life for every citizen. Goldstein's book explains that the purpose of the unwinnable perpetual war is to consume human labor and commodities so that the economy of a superstate cannot support economic equality with a high standard of living for every citizen. By using up most of the produced goods, the proles are kept poor and uneducated, and the party hopes that they will neither realize what the government is doing, nor rebel. Goldstein also details an Oceanian strategy of attacking enemy cities with atomic rockets before invasion, but dismisses it as unfeasible and contrary to the war's purpose. Despite the atomic bombing of cities in the 1950s, the superstates stopped it for fear that it would imbalance the powers. The military technology in the novel differs little from that of World War II, but strategic bomber airplanes are replaced with rocket bombs, helicopters were heavily used as weapons of war, and surface combat units have been all but replaced by immense and unsinkable island-like contraptions concentrating the firepower of a whole naval force in a single semi-mobile platform. In the novel, one is said to have been anchored between Iceland and the Faroe Islands, suggesting a preference for sea lane interdiction and denial. Claude Rosenhoff notes that, quote, None of the wars in 1984 can be in any way trusted as a report of something which actually happened. 
Winston Smith himself is depicted as inventing a war hero who never existed and attributing to him various acts which never took place. After Oshania's shift of alliance fighting Istasia rather than Eurasia, the entire Ministry of Truth staff is engaged in an intensive effort to eradicate all reports of the war with Eurasia and move the war to another part of the world. So we do know for a fact that all records of the previous five years of war are henceforward false, depicting battles which never happened in places where there had been no war. But it might well be that the early records of war with Eurasia, which were destroyed and eradicated, had been just as false. The same doubts also apply to the major piece of war news in the final chapter, a titanic battle engulfing the entire continent of Africa, won by Oshania due to a brilliant piece of strategic surprise, and finally proving to Smith the genius of Big Brother. There is no way of knowing whether any such battle really took place in Africa, nor can we know if this piece of spectacular war news was broadcast all over Oshania, or whether it was an exclusive show broadcast solely into the telescreen in the Chestnut Tree Cafe, with the sole purpose of having on Winston Smith exactly the psychological effect which it did have. Indeed, there is the passage where Julia doubts that any war is taking place at all and suspects that the rockets falling occasionally on London are fired by the government of Oshania itself to keep the population on their toes. Though, Winston does not let his doubts of the official propaganda go that far. And how much can we, living in a supposedly free and democratic society, objectively check the variety of what our supposedly free press tells us? Political Geography Three perpetually warring totalitarian superstates control the world in the novel. Oceana, ideology, Ingsoch, known in old speak as English socialism, whose core territories are the Americas, the Atlantic Islands, including the British Isles, Australia, and the southern portion of Africa. Eurasia, ideology, neo-Bolshevism, whose core territories are the whole of northern part of European and Asiatic landmass from Portugal to the Bering Strait. Eastasia, ideology, obliteration of the self, also known as death worship, whose core territories are China and the countries south to it, the Japanese islands, and a large but fluctuating portion of Manchuria, Mongolia, and Tibet. The perpetual war is fought for control of the disputed area lying between the frontiers of the superstates, which forms a rough quadrilateral with its corners at Tangier, Brazzaville, Darwin, and Hong Kong, which includes equatorial Africa, the Middle East, India, and Indonesia. The disputed area is where the superstates capture slave labor. Fighting also takes place between Eurasia and Eastasia in Manchuria, Mongolia, and Central Asia, and between Eurasia and Oceania over various islands in the Indian and Pacific Ocean. Oceania, Ingsoch, English socialism, is the predominant ideology and philosophy of Oceania, and Newspeak is the official language of official documents. Orwell depicts the party's ideology as an oligarchical worldview that rejects and vilifies every principle for which the socialist movement originally stood, and it does so in the name of socialism. of Oshania. In London, the capital city of Airstrip 1, Oshania's four government ministries are in pyramids, the facades of which display the party's three slogans, war is peace, freedom is slavery, ignorance is strength. As mentioned, the ministries are deliberately named after the opposite, doublethink, of their true functions. The Ministry of Peace concerns itself with war, the Ministry of Truth with lies, the Ministry of Love with Torture, and the Ministry of Plenty with Starvation. While a ministry is supposedly headed by a minister, 
The ministers heading these four ministries are never mentioned. They seem to be completely out of the public view, Big Brother being the only ever-present public face of the government. Ministry of Peace The Ministry of Peace supports Oshania's perpetual war against either of the two other superstates. The primary aim of modern warfare, in accordance with the principles of doublethink, this aim is simultaneously recognized and not recognized by the directing brains of the inner party, is to use up the products of the machine without raising the general standard of living. Ever since the end of the 19th century, the problem of what to do with the surplus of consumption goods has been latent in industrial society. At present, when few human beings even have enough to eat, this problem is obviously not urgent, and it might not have become so, even if no artificial processes of destruction had been at work. Ministry of Plenty The Ministry of Plenty rations and controls food, goods, and domestic production. Every fiscal quarter, it claims to have raised the standard of living even during times when it has, in fact, reduced rations, availability, and production. The Ministry of Truth substantiates the Ministry of Plenty's claims by manipulating historical records to report numbers supporting the claims of increased rations. The Ministry of Plenty also runs the National Lottery as a distraction for the proles. Party members understand it to be a sham process in which winnings are never paid out. Ministry of Truth The Ministry of Truth controls information, news, entertainment, education, and the arts. Winston Smith works in the Records Department, rectifying historical records to accord with Big Brother's current pronouncements so that everything the party says appears to be true. Ministry of Love The Ministry of Love identifies, monitors, arrests, and converts real and imagined dissidents. This is also the place where the Thought Police beat and torture dissidents, after which they are sent to Room 101 to face the worst thing in the world, until love for Big Brother and the party replaces dissension. Nationalism. 1984 expands upon the subject summarized in Orwell's essay, Notes on Nationalism, about the lack of vocabulary needed to explain the unrecognized phenomena behind certain political forces. In 1984, the party's artificial, minimalist language, Newspeak, addresses the matter. Positive nationalism. For instance, Oshanian's perpetual love for Big Brother. Orwell argues in the essay that ideologies such as Neo-Toryism and Celtic nationalism are defined by their obsessive sense of loyalty to some entity. Negative nationalism. For instance, Oshanian's perpetual hatred for Emmanuel Goldstein. Orwell argues in the essay that ideologies such as Trotskyism and anti-Semitism are defined by their obsessive hatred of some entity. Transferred nationalism. For instance, when Oshania's enemy changes, an orator makes a change mid-sentence and the crowd instantly transfers its hatred to the new enemy. Orwell argues that ideologies such as Stalinism and redirected feelings of racial animus and class superiority among wealthy intellectuals exemplify this. Transferred nationalism swiftly redirects emotions from one power unit to another. In the novel, it happens during Hate Week, a party rally against the original enemy. The crowd goes wild and destroys the posters that are now against their new friend, and many say they must be the act of an agent of their new enemy and former friend. Many of the crowd must have put up the posters before the rally, but think that the state of affairs had always been the case. O'Brien concludes, The object of persecution is persecution. The object of torture is torture. The object of power is power. Futurology In the book, Inner Party Member O'Brien describes the party's vision of the future. There will be no curiosity, no enjoyment of the process of life. All competing pleasures will be destroyed. But always, do not forget this, Winston, always there will be the intoxication of power, constantly increasing and constantly growing subtler. Always, at every moment, there will be the thrill of victory, the sensation of trampling on an enemy who is helpless. If you want a picture of the future, imagine a boot stamping on a human face, forever. Part 3, Chapter 3, 1984 Censorship one of the more notable themes in 1984 is censorship, especially in the Ministry of Truth, where photographs and public archives are manipulated to rid them of unpersons. 
people who have been erased from the history of the party. On the telescreens, almost all figures of production are grossly exaggerated or simply fabricated to indicate an ever-growing economy, even during times when the reality is the opposite. One small example of the endless censorship is Winston being charged with the task of eliminating a reference to an unperson in a newspaper article. He also proceeds to write an article about Comrade Ogilvy, a made-up party member who allegedly displayed great heroism by leaping into the sea from a helicopter so that the dispatches he was carrying would not fall into enemy hands. Surveillance In Oshania, the upper and middle classes have very little true privacy. All of their houses and apartments are equipped with telescreens so that they may be watched or listened to at any time. Similar telescreens are found at workstations and in public places, along with hidden microphones. Written correspondence is routinely opened and read by the government before it is delivered. The thought police employ undercover agents who pose as normal citizens and report any person with subversive tendencies. Children are encouraged to report suspicious persons to the government, and some denounce their parents. Citizens are controlled, and the smallest sign of rebellion, even something as small as a suspicious facial expression, can result in immediate arrest and imprisonment. The citizens are compelled to obedience. Poverty and Inequality According to Goldstein's book, almost the entire world lives in poverty, hunger, thirst, disease, and filth are all the norms. Ruined cities and towns are common, the consequence of wars and false flag operations. Social decay and wrecked buildings surround Winston. Aside from the ministry's pyramids, little of London was rebuilt. Middle-class citizens and proles consume synthetic foodstuffs and poor-quality luxuries, such as oily gin and loosely-packed cigarettes, distributed under the Victory brand. This is a parody of the low-quality Indian-made Victory cigarettes, widely smoked in Britain and by British soldiers during World War II. They were smoked because it was easier to import them from India than it was to import American cigarettes from across the Atlantic because of the Battle of the Atlantic. Winston describes something as simple as the repair of a broken window as requiring committee approval. So that can take several years, and most of those living in one of the blocks usually do the repairs themselves. All upper-class and middle-class residences include telescreens that serve both as outlets for propaganda and surveillance devices that allow the thought police to monitor them. They can be turned down, but the ones in middle-class residences can never be turned off. In contrast to their subordinates, the upper class of Oshanian society reside in clean and comfortable flats in their own quarters, with pantries well-stocked with foodstuffs such as wine, real coffee, real tea, real milk, and real sugar, all denied to the general population. Winston is astonished that the lifts in O'Brien's building work, the telescreens can be completely turned off, and O'Brien has an Asian manservant, Martin. All upper-class citizens are attended to by slaves captured in the disputed zone, and the book suggests that many have their own cars or even helicopters. Nonetheless, the book makes clear that even the conditions enjoyed by the inner party are only relatively comfortable, and standards would be regarded as austere by those of pre-revolutionary elite. The proles live in poverty and are kept sedated with alcohol, pornography, and a national lottery whose winnings are rarely paid out. That is obscured by propaganda and the lack of communication within Oshania. At the same time, the proles are freer and less intimidated than the upper classes. They are not expected to be particularly patriotic, and the levels of surveillance they are subjected to are very low. They lack telescreens in their own homes and often jeer at the telescreens that they see. The book indicates that because the middle class, not the lower class, traditionally starts revolutions, the model demands tight control of the middle class, with ambitious outer party members neutralized via promotion to the inner party or reintegration by the Ministry of Love. And proles can be allowed intellectual freedom because they are deemed to lack intellect. Winston nonetheless believes that the future belonged to the proles. The standard of living of the population is extremely low overall. Consumer goods are scarce, and those available through official channels are of low quality. For instance, despite the party regularly reporting increased boot production, more than half of the population goes barefoot. 
The party claims that poverty is a necessary sacrifice for the war effort, and the book confirms that to be partially correct since the purpose of perpetual war consumes surplus industrial production. Sources for Literary Motifs 1984 uses themes from life in the Soviet Union and wartime life in Great Britain as sources for many of its motifs. Sometime at an unspecified date after the first American publication of the book, producer Sidney Sheldon wrote to Orwell interested in adapting the novel to the Broadway stage. Orwell sold the American stage rights to Sheldon, explaining that his basic goal with 1984 was imagining the consequences of Stalinist government ruling British society. Quote, 1984 was based chiefly on communism, because that is the dominant form of totalitarianism. But I was trying chiefly to imagine what communism would be like if it were firmly rooted in the English-speaking countries and was no longer a mere extension of the Russian Foreign Office. According to Orwell biographer D.J. Taylor, the author's A Clergyman's Daughter, 1935, has, quote, essentially the same plot of 1984. It's about somebody who is spied upon and eavesdropped upon and oppressed by vast exterior forces that they can do nothing about. It makes an attempt at rebellion and then has to compromise. The statement, 2 plus 2 equals 5, used to torment Winston Smith during his interrogation, was a Communist Party slogan from the second five-year plan, which encouraged fulfillment of the five-year plan in four years. The slogan was seen in electric lights on Moscow house fronts, billboards, and elsewhere. The switch of Oshania's allegiance from Eastasia to Eurasia and the subsequent rewriting of history is evocative of the Soviet Union's changing relations with Nazi Germany. The two nations were open and frequently critics of each other until the signing of the 1939 Treaty of Non-Aggression. Thereafter, and continuing until the Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union in 1941, no criticism of Germany was allowed in the Soviet press, and all references to prior party lines stopped, including in the majority of non-Russian communist parties who tended to follow the Russian line. Orwell had criticized the Communist Party of Great Britain for supporting the treaty in his essays for Betrayal of the Left, 1941. Quote, the Hitler-Stalin Pact of August 1939 reversed the Soviet Union's stated foreign policy. The description of Emmanuel Goldstein with a, quote, small goatee beard evokes the image of Leon Trotsky. The film of Goldstein during the Two Minutes Hate is described as showing him being transformed into a bleeding sheep. This image was used in a propaganda film during the Kino I period of Soviet film, which showed Trotsky transforming into a goat. Goldstein's book is similar to Trotsky's highly critical analysis of the USSR, The Revolution Betrayed, published in 1936. The omnipresent images of Big Brother, a man described as having a mustache, bears resemblance to the cult of personality built up around Joseph Stalin. The news in Oshania emphasized production figures, just as it did in the Soviet Union, where record-setting in factories was especially glorified. The best known of these was Alexei Stakharnov, who purportedly set a record for coal mining in 1935. The tortures of the Ministry of Love evoked the procedures used by the NKVD in their interrogations, including being forbidden to put your hands in your pockets, remaining in brightly lit rooms for days, torture through the use of their greatest fear, and the victim being shown a mirror after their physical collapse. The random bombing of Airstrip 1 is based on the buzz bombs and the V-2 rocket, which struck England at random in 1944 and 1945. The Thought Police is based on the NKVD, which arrested people for random, quote, anti-Soviet remarks. The thought crime motif is drawn from Kempetai, the Japanese wartime secret police who arrested people for unpatriotic thoughts. The confessions of thought criminals Rutherford, Aronson, and Jones are based on the show trials of the 1930s, which included fabricated confessions by prominent Bolsheviks. The hates, the two-minute hate and hate week, were inspired by the constant rallies supported by party organs throughout the Stalinist period. These were often short pep talks given to workers before their shifts began, but could last also for days, as in the annual celebrations of the anniversary of the October Revolution, Hate Week. 
Orwell fictionalized Newspeak, Doublethink, and Ministry of Truth based on both the Soviet press and that of Nazi Germany. In particular, he adopted Soviet ideological discourse constructed to ensure that public statements could not be questioned. Winston Smith's job, quote, revising history and the unperson motif, are based on the censorship of images in the Soviet Union, which airbrushed images of fallen people from group photographs and removed references to them in books and newspapers. In one well-known example, the Soviet Encyclopedia had an article about Lavernity Beria. When he fell in 1953 and was subsequently executed, institutes that had the encyclopedia were sent an article about the Bering Strait with instructions to paste it over the article about Beria. Big Brothers, Orders of the Day, were inspired by Stalin's regular wartime orders called by the same name. A small collection of the more political of these have been published, together with his wartime speeches, in English as On the Great Patriotic War of the Soviet Union by Joseph Stalin. Like Big Brothers, Orders of the Day, Stalin's frequently lauded heroic individuals like Comrade Ogilvy, the fictitious war hero Winston Smith invented to rectify, fabricate, a Big Brother order of the day. The Ingsoch slogan, Our New Happy Life, repeated from telescreens, evokes Stalin's 1935 statement, which became a CPSU slogan, Life has become better, comrades. Life has become more cheerful. During World War II, Orwell believed that British democracy as it existed before 1939 would not survive the war. The question being, would it end via a fascist coup d'etat from above or via socialist revolution from below? Later, he admitted that events proved him wrong. Quote, what really matters is that I fell into the trap of assuming that the war and the revolution are inseparable. 1984, 1949, and Animal Farm from 1945 share themes of the betrayed revolution, the individual's subordination to the collective, rigorously enforced class distinctions, the cult of personality, concentration camps, thought police, compulsory regimented daily exercise, and youth leagues. Oshania resulted from the U.S. annexation of the British Empire to counter the Asian peril to Australia and New Zealand. It is a naval power whose militarism venerates the sailors of the floating fortresses from which battle is given to recapturing India, the, quote, jewel in the crown of the British Empire. Much of Oceanic society is based upon the USSR under Joseph Stalin, Big Brother. The televised Two Minutes Hate is a ritual demonization of the enemies of the state, especially Emmanuel Goldstein. Altered photographs and newspaper articles create unpersons deleted from the National Historic Record, including even founding members of the regime, in the 1960s purges. A similar thing also happened during the French Revolution's Reign of Terror, in which many of the original leaders of the revolution were later put to death. In his 1946 essay, Why I Write, Orwell explains that the serious works he wrote since the Spanish Civil War, 1936-1939, were, quote, written directly or indirectly against totalitarianism and for democratic socialism. 1984 is a cautionary tale about revolution betrayed by totalitarian defenders previously proposed in Homage to Catalonia, 1938, and Animal Farm in 1945, while Coming Up for Air, 1939, celebrates the personal and political freedoms lost in 1984. Other influences include Darkness at Noon, 1940, The Yogi and the Commissar, 1945, The Iron Heel, 1908, Dips into the Near Future, and Brave New World, 1932, We, 1921, and The Managerial Revolution, 1940, predicting perpetual war among three totalitarian superstates. Extrapolating from World War II, the novel's pastiche parallels the politics and rhetoric at war's end, the changed alliances at the Cold War's beginning. The Ministry of Truth derives from the BBC's overseas service, controlled by the Ministry of Information. Room 101 derives from a conference room at BBC Broadcasting House. The Senate House of the University of London, containing the Ministry of Information, is the architectural inspiration for the mini-true. The post-war decrepitude derives from the socio-political life of the UK and the US, that is, the impoverished Britain of 1948 
losing its empire despite newspaper-reported imperial triumph, and war ally but peacetime foe, Soviet Russia, became Eurasia. The term English socialism has precedence in Orwell's wartime writings. In the essay The Lion and the Unicorn, Socialism and the English Genius, 1941, he said that, quote, the war and the revolution are inseparable. The fact that we are at war has turned socialism from a textbook word into a realizable policy. Because Britain's supernatural social class system hindered the war effort and only a socialist economy would defeat Adolf Hitler. Given the middle classes grasping this, they too would abide socialist revolution and that only reactionary Britons would oppose it, thus limiting the force revolutionaries would need to take power. An English socialism would come about, which, quote, will never lose touch with the tradition of compromise and belief in a law that is above the state. It will shoot traitors, but it will give them a trial beforehand and occasionally it will acquit them. It will crush any open revolt promptly and cruelly, but it will interfere very little with the spoken and written word. In the world of 1984, English socialism, or Ingsoch in Newspeak, is a totalitarian ideology unlike the English revolution he foresaw. Comparison of the wartime essay The Lion and the Unicorn with 1984 shows that he perceived a Big Brother regime as a perversion of his cherished socialist ideals and English socialism. Thus, Oshania is a corruption of the British Empire he believed would evolve, quote, into a federation of socialist states, like a looser and freer version of the Union of Soviet Republics. Critical Reception when it was first published, 1984 received critical acclaim. V.S. Pritchett, reviewing the novel for The New Statesman, stated, quote, I do not think I have ever read a novel more frightening and depressing. And yet, such are the originality, the suspense, the speed of writing, and withering indignation that it is impossible to put the book down. P.H. Newby, reviewing 1984 for The Listener magazine, described it as, quote, the most arresting political novel written by an Englishman since Rex Warner's The Aerodome. 1984 was also praised by Bertrand Russell, E.M. Forster, and Harold Nicholson. On the other hand, Edward Shanks, reviewing 1984 for the Sunday Times, was dismissive. Shanks claimed 1984, quote, breaks all records for gloomy vaticination. C.S. Lewis was also critical of the novel, claiming that the relationship of Julia and Winston, and especially the party's view on sex, lacked credibility and that the setting was, quote, odious rather than tragic. On November 5, 1929, the BBC named 1984 on its list of the 100 most influential novels. Adaptations in Other Media in the same year as the novel's publishing, a one-hour radio adaptation was aired on the United States NBC Radio Network as part of the NBC University Theater series. The first television adaptation appeared as part of CBS's Studio One series in September 1953. BBC Television broadcast an adaptation by Nigel Neal in December 1954. The first feature film adaptation, 1984, was released in 1956. A second feature-length adaptation, 1984, followed in 1984. It received critical acclaim for its reasonably faithful adaptation of the novel. The story has been adapted several other times to radio, television, and film. Other media adaptations include theater, opera, and ballet. Cultural Impact The effect of 1984 on the English language is extensive. The concept of Big Brother, Room 101, The Thought Police, Thought Crime, Unperson, Memory Hole, Doublethink, and Newspeak have become common phrases for denoting totalitarian authority. Doublespeak and Groupthink are both deliberate elaborations of Doublethink, the, and the adjective Orwellian means similar to Orwell's writings, especially 1984. The practice of ending words with speak, such as media speak, is drawn from the novel. Orwell is perpetually associated with 1984. In July 1984, an asteroid was discovered by Antonin Merkos and named after Orwell. 
1955, an episode of BBC's The Goon Show, 1985, was broadcast, written by Spike Milligan and Eric Skies, and based on Nigel Neal's television adaptation. It was re-recorded about a month later with the same script, but a slightly different cast. 1985 parodies many of the main scenes in Orwell's novel. In 1970, the American rock group Spirit released the song 1984 based on Orwell's novel. In 1973, ex-soft machine bassist Hugh Hopper released an album called 1984 on the Columbia label consisting of instrumentals with Orwellian titles such as Mini Love, Mini Packs, Mini True, and so forth. In 1974, David Bowie released the album Diamond Dogs, which is thought to be loosely based on the novel 1984. It includes the tracks We Are the Dead, 1984, and Big Brother. Before the album was made, Bowie's management, Main Man, had prepared for Bowie and Tony Ingracia, Main Man's creative consultant, to co-write and direct a musical production of Orwell's 1984, but Orwell's widow refused to give Main Man the rights. In 1977, the British rock band The Jam released the album This Is The Modern World, which includes the track Standards by Paul Weller. This track concludes with the lyrics, quote, And ignorance is strength. We have God on our side. Look, you know what happened to Winston. In 1984, Ridley Scott directed a television commercial, 1984, to launch Apple's Macintosh computer. The advertisement stated, quote, 1984 won't be like 1984, suggesting that an Apple Mac would be freedom from Big Brother, that is, the IBM PC. An episode of Doctor Who called The God Complex depicts an alien ship disguised as a hotel containing room 101-like spaces and quotes the nursery rhyme as well. The two-part episode, Chain of Command, on Star Trek The Next Generation, bears some resemblances to the novel. Radiohead's 2003 single, 2 Plus 2 Equals 5, from their album Hail to the Thief, is Orwellian by title and content. Tom York states, quote, I was listening to a lot of political programs on BBC Radio 4. I found myself writing down little nonsense phrases, those Orwellian euphemisms that British and American governments are so fond of. They became the background of the record. In September 2009, the English progressive rock band Muse released The Resistance, which included songs influenced by 1984. In 2012, the film Cloud Atlas depicts a dark, dystopian future where a global world government is in power. A captured political prisoner is interrogated by a government official and is warned not to use Korean, referred to as subspeak. Similarly, in the book, English is no longer in use, having been diluted into Newspeak, an ideological language designed to support the party line, curtailing illegal thoughts and even preventing their formation. References to the themes, concepts, and plot of 1984 have appeared frequently in other works, especially in popular music and video entertainment. An example is the worldwide hit reality television show, Big Brother, in which a group of people live together in a large home, isolated from the outside world, but continuously watched by television cameras. In November 2011, the U.S. government argued before the U.S. Supreme Court that it wants to continue utilizing GPS tracking of individuals without first seeking a warrant. In response, Justice Stephen Breyer questioned what that means for a democratic society by referencing 1984. Justice Breyer asked, quote, if you win this case, then there is nothing to prevent the police or the government from monitoring 24 hours a day the public movement of every citizen of the United States. So if you win, you suddenly produce what sounds like 1984. The book touches on the invasion of privacy and ubiquitous surveillance. From mid-2013, it was publicized that the NSA had been secretly monitoring and storing global internet traffic, including bulk data collection of email and phone cellular data. Sales of 1984 increased by up to seven times within the first week of the 2013 mass surveillance leaks. The book again topped the Amazon.com sales charts in 2017 after a controversy involving Kellyanne Conway using the phrase, quote, alternative facts to explain discrepancies with the media. The book also shows mass media as a catalyst for the intensification of destructive emotions and violence. Since the 20th century, news and other forms of media have been publicizing violence more often. In 2013, Nottingham Playhouse staged a successful new adaptation, which twice toured the UK and played an extended run in London's West End. 
The play opened on Broadway in New York in 2017. A version of the production played an Australian tour in 2017. 1984 was number three on the list of top checkouts of all time by the New York Public Library. In accordance with copyright law, 1984 and Animal Farm both entered the public domain on January 1st, 2021 in most of the world, 70 calendar years after Orwell died. The U.S. copyright expiration is different for both novels, 95 years after publication. Brave New World Comparisons In October 1949, after reading 1984, Huxley sent a letter to Orwell in which he argued that it would be more efficient for rulers to stay in power by the softer touch by allowing citizens to seek pleasure to control them rather than use brute force. He wrote, Quote, whether in actual fact the policy of the boot on the face can go on indefinitely seems doubtful. My own belief is that the ruling oligarchy will find less arduous and wasteful ways of governing and of satisfying its lust for power, and these ways will resemble those which I describe in Brave New World. Within the next generation, I believe that the world's rulers will discover that infant conditioning and narco-hypnosis are more efficient as instruments of the government than clubs and prisons, and that the lust for power can be just as completely satisfied by suggesting people into loving their servitude as by flogging and kicking them into obedience. In the decades since the publication of 1984, there have been numerous comparisons to Huxley's Brave New World, which had been published 17 years earlier in 1932. They are both predictions of societies dominated by a central government and are both based on extensions of the trends of their times. However, members of the ruling class of 1984 use brutal force, torture, and mind control to keep individuals in line, while rulers in Brave New World keep the citizens in line by addictive drugs and pleasurable distractions. Regarding censorship, in 1984, the government tightly controls information to keep the population in line, but in Huxley's world, so much information is published that readers do not know which information is relevant and what can be disregarded. Elements of both novels can be seen in modern-day societies, with Huxley's vision being more dominant in the West, and Orwell's vision more prevalent with dictators, including those in communist countries, as is pointed out in essays that compare the two novels, including Huxley's own Brave New World Revisited. Comparisons with other dystopian novels like The Handmaid's Tale, Virtual Light, The Private Eye, and The Children of Men have all been drawn. That's it for today's episode of Wikiredia. Look, before you go, be sure to hit subscribe, follow us on Twitter at It's Wikiredia, and tell your friends. What do you want to listen to? Send topic ideas to our email, which is wikiredia at pm.me. Our producer and narrator, that's me, is Eric Gorris. Our engineer is OJ Tingles, and our content editor is Johnny Rocketship. We ask you to support this show by following and sharing, but more importantly, just listening. We also ask that you do your part to support Wikipedia itself by considering a donation to the Wikipedia Foundation. That can be done at wikipedia.org. All, or at least the vast majority, of the words spoken on this show are from the text of Wikipedia entries, and we're using those words under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license, which grants us, and in fact anyone, the right to adapt the original work remix it, and then to distribute and transmit the work even for commercial purposes. This license requires that we name the author of the original work, which in this case is Wikipedia. Wikiredia itself is also distributed under the same Creative Commons attribution, Sharealike 3.0 license. Wikiredia is a production of Eric Public Media and the Alaska Ice Corporation. Oh, thank you.